gaze upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father in heaven, this is our heart's desire <clears throat> to turn our eyes upon Jesus today. Lord, we've been praying for one another, and uh, we know that when two or three agree on anything touching earth, our Father in heaven hears it. God, we're praying to you, not because we are unsure that you can meet our needs. We're praying to you, not because we're unsure that you want to meet our needs. We're praying to you because we just want to confess that we know we have a deep need for your Holy Spirit. And so, we're praying, God, that you would teach us what the promise of the Father is today. We're praying that you would open up to our hearts and to our minds an understanding of the scriptures that maybe we haven't had before. We pray that as we turn here and there, that you would be the one to connect the dots, and that you would speak directly to our hearts today. Thank you so much that you're able to. Thank you so much that you want to. Thank you so much that it is your will to, because we pray in Jesus' saving name, let the family say, amen, amen. All right, we're going to do our Bible study Today, we are calling it the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. At the beginning of the month, we had three powerful testimonies spoken about the impact of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. Do you remember that? Three uh, amazing testimonies. If you don't have a recording of that, um, we, we'll get that one to you. We'll, I'll actually put it on the web here pretty soon. Sorry, Morgan, it hasn't been up there yet. But yeah, those testimonies were sharing simply what the Holy Spirit has done to transform and use their lives. Uh, last week, I wasn't able to be here. I was, I was out at Soquel Campgrounds for a young adult retreat, but I did get to hear the recording of a powerful message that Brother Joe spoke on 2B1, how it is that God designs and God desires that we would have the same oneness between us and God through prayer as Jesus himself had with the Father. And now, we're going to be talking about the promise of the Father. So go with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, and this is what the scripture was this morning. Again, if you're taking notes, go ahead and start that list. We're going to go from scripture to scripture, and maybe we won't have time to go to all of them, but I'll give you some verses to look up on your own time. So we're starting in Acts chapter 1, the promise of the Father. If you're there in Acts chapter 1, go ahead and say amen. All right, Acts, it comes right after John, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then the Acts. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, the Bible says, I'm reading from the New King James, it says this, And being assembled together with them, he, speaking of Jesus, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to do what? But to wait. To wait for who? the promise, or maybe your Bible says, the gift of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Well, what is this promise? Verse 5 goes on, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with who? With the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. 
All right, so we're calling this the promise of the Father. Jesus was saying, hey, look, wait in Jerusalem. Don't go back home. Don't go back to Galilee because there is a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. Now, if I make a promise to my daughter, hey, Jenna, I'm going to give you a stroller for Christmas, a baby stroller for Christmas, okay? That's a promise, but has that promise been fulfilled yet? Yes or no? Not yet, right? As I'm speaking that promise, I'm saying just wait till Christmas, right? The stroller is not in her possession just yet. And so when Jesus is speaking to the disciples, at this point, they're about 40 days post-resurrection. When Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he says, wait for the promise of the Father, have they received that promise yet? Yes or no? Apparently not. And, and just to make sure, what or who specifically is this promise of the Father? What is this gift that they're supposed to be waiting for? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so let's follow this. The promise of the Father at this point in Acts chapter 1 verse 4 has not yet been fulfilled. That promise is really the promise of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And apparently it has yet to be fulfilled. But my question this morning is, wasn't the Holy Spirit already on earth? Yes. yes. So the Holy Spirit was present, but apparently the baptism, the full outpouring, or, or whatever it is that Jesus has in mind as he's talking to the disciples, has not yet been fully realized. There's something more. Are we following this today? Yes or no? Yeah? There's something more for the disciples to experience, and as of Acts chapter 1 verse 4, it has yet to be realized. So, question is, what is the promise of the Father? Or maybe we should say this, what is the purpose, what is the purpose of this baptism of the Holy Spirit? All right, so we're going to do a, a quick study from Old Testament to New Testament, and we're going to be asking this question, because I think a lot of times we focus on this promise of the Holy Spirit, and we pray, we pray for the Holy Spirit, but we oftentimes skip to asking for the power of the Spirit without truly understanding the purpose of the Spirit himself. Do you understand what I mean? Oftentimes we just, we, we, we want to gain this power, we want to gain this fresh outpouring without fully understanding, and I would say without fully submitting to the purpose of the Spirit in our lives. And so that's why we're going to cover this today, actually throughout this month and then into the month of February. We're going to be focusing on the gift of the Holy Spirit the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we need to get some things straight before we do, because a lot of times we skip to the power without understanding the purpose, okay? So let's start with first things first, and let's lay down the foundation. Okay, so in the Old Testament, was the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament, yes or no? Yes, yes, right? We even read about the Holy Spirit in, in the very first two verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Okay, so the Spirit of God is eternally part of the Godhead. Okay, but where is the Holy Spirit manifest throughout the Old Testament? Here's some facts just to kind of get started. There are 88 references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. 88 references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. In contrast... In the New Testament, he's referred to 262 times. 
Okay, so by comparison, is the Holy Spirit uh, more focused on in the Old Testament or New Testament? In the New Testament, okay? In fact, the Old Testament is much longer than the New Testament, so really by comparison, uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned ten times more in the New Testament than he is in the Old Testament, okay? Now we've got to ask ourselves, well, what did the Holy Spirit really do in people's lives in the Old Testament? When you survey the Old Testament, you have certain figures, certain people, certain individuals that were filled or used by the Holy Spirit. For example, you remember a guy named Joseph? Yeah? Joseph, he was uh, actually sold as a slave to Egypt. Eventually, God used him to, to really be second in command to Pharaoh. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 41 that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. All right? There are other individuals who experience the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. When you read through Exodus, you find uh, that when the, the children of Israel were building the tabernacle, God actually filled certain individuals with the gift of the Holy Spirit to, to build the tabernacle, to design it, to make it beautiful. All right? So over and over throughout the Old Testament, you find the most marked, the most marked manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the lives of individuals or leaders to do a specific task. Did you hear what I said? So in the Old Testament, general note, the Holy Spirit is most markedly revealed in the lives of individuals or leaders for a specific task. But I want you to realize something, that God was not satisfied with sending his Holy Spirit with just a few individuals. Okay, go with me to Numbers. Go Old Testament. We're going to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. In fact, Moses himself was one of these few leaders, one of these chosen leaders that experienced the full power of the Holy Spirit. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers is the fourth book of the Old Testament. So you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're going to Numbers chapter 11. And when you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, Numbers chapter 11, and we're going to start reading in verse 26. By the time you come to Numbers chapter 11, Moses, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, Moses, who was used by the Holy Spirit to lead the children of Israel, some, two, some estimate two million Israelites in the wilderness. That's a really big road trip, a really big caravan, okay? But by the time you come to Numbers chapter 11, Moses has heard a lot of complaining. You remember the stories of the children of Israel? Yeah, they've heard, <laughs> Moses' ears are ringing with complaints. And by the time we come to Numbers 11, Moses says to God, God, I'm getting really tired. <laughs> and God tells Moses, look, choose 70 elders, and I'm going to take the spirit that is upon you and put it upon them. Very interesting, okay? God was saying, look, Moses, you are filled with the spirit. I'm going to take of the Spirit and share it with others, which implies that at that point, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit was somewhat limited, okay? But notice this, in verse 26, verse 26, it says, but two men had remained in the camp, two of the 70 elders who were supposed to be in this, this gathering, but two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them, now, they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. They, they demonstrated the power of the Spirit in their lives. Verse 27. 
And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Okay, this guy doesn't know what to do with this. He's, he's not quite sure. Is this, supposed, is this out of order? And in verse 28, Joshua the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Now verse 29, then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Remember, Moses was described later on in scripture as the most meek and humble man that ever lived, okay? Moses wasn't about himself. Moses wasn't trying to bring glory to himself. And so he says, are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon who? Upon them. Do you understand? So throughout the Old Testament, you have the Spirit coming upon certain individuals like Moses or like Joseph. Or when you read through Judges, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. They did these great and mighty things. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David, etc., etc., etc. But Moses is saying, oh man, would that all of God's people, would that all of God's people were filled with the power of the Spirit. And so this kind of hints at this Old Testament idea that even though the Spirit was present in individuals' lives, God wanted to do something broader. God wanted to do something bigger. Are we following together? Yes or no? Yeah? Let's go to a few more texts. Isaiah chapter 44. Because there are rumblings throughout the prophets of old of this promise that there would be something broader and bigger. Isaiah chapter 44 and we're just going to go to three Old Testament prophets, three Old Testament prophecies that give us this echo of Moses' desire. Isaiah chapter 44, when you're there, say amen. amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 44, and I'm looking at verse 3. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3. Here God is speaking. This is the word of the Lord. And in verse 3 of Isaiah 44, the Bible says, for I will pour water on him who is what? Thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. God is saying, look, to anyone who is thirsty, I will pour out my spirit. Not just a few spiritually elite, not just a few spiritual giants, but I will pour my spirit on anyone who is thirsty. Okay, go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. So a few books over. If you're in Isaiah, go to the right. You'll find Jeremiah, then Lamentations, and then Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay. Ezekiel chapter 36. Remember, we're trying to catch the, the echoes of Moses' desire and the prophets pick this up. So Isaiah says, look, God will pour out his spirit, not just on a few, but on anyone who is thirsty. And then in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. That's where we are. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27. Here's the prophet's promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put what? my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Can I get a witness? Amen. 
seriously, I, I don't know how many of us have these resolutions or have these desires to be obedient to God when in reality, God's promise is I will put my spirit in you and he will cause you to walk in my statutes. So God has promised through Isaiah, I'll pour out my spirit on anyone who is thirsty. God has promised through Ezekiel that when my spirit comes in you, he will cause you to live a transformed life. There's one more Old Testament prophet. Let's find him. It's Joel. A little bit harder to find, okay? So you're going to the right now again. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. And then Joel is somewhere back there, right? Okay. <laughs> Hosea and then Joel. Joel chapter 2. We're going to Joel chapter 2. These rumblings of a broader promise. And in Joel chapter 2, I'll begin in, in verse 28. Joel chapter 2 is a powerful chapter. The people of God are in need of deep repentance. And the prophet Joel is used by God to call people. He says, weep between the porch and the altar. Mourn for your sins. He's calling people for for deep repentance. In chapter 3, he says, many are in the valley of decision. People haven't even made their decision for Christ or against him. But Joel chapter 2, he's calling for this deep repentance. Joel 2 also pictures a, a full-on restoration of the land. And then in verse 28 and 29, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, here's where this echo of Moses' plea, oh, I wish that all would have the Spirit. Notice how God echoes this loud and clear. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on who? All. On all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Do you see how all-encompassing this promise is? No gender is left out. No age is left out. No class is left out. Do you see it? Sons and daughters, old men, young men, men servants, maid servants. The Holy Spirit longs to be present in everyone's life, not just a few, not just the chosen, not just the individual, but on everyone. And here is God. This is his longing. And this promise is the promise of the Father that Jesus was teaching his disciples about in Acts chapter 1. There's a promise that God has been waiting to pour out. So wait for him. Wait for him. Question. What did this promise, or the fulfillment and realization of it, what did this promise hinge upon? What was, the, what was the gatekeeper for the floods of the Holy Spirit? Go with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 tells us. Here we are, John chapter 7. John, again, we're in New Testament now. John chapter 7, the fourth book of the New Testament. When you're there, say amen. Okay, we're flipping, flipping back and forth. Okay, if you're, hopefully you're keeping up with your notes too. 
John chapter 7, and I'm going to start reading from verse 37. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. This is key. This is critical. Because if God wants to fulfill this promise, the question is, when would be that day? When would it happen where this broad, far-reaching, all-encompassing promise actually be fulfilled? And in John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39, Jesus is actually, he's participating in a, in a feast. It was the Feast of Tabernacles that the Jews were celebrating in Jerusalem. Part of that was to, was to pour out water from the steps of the temple. It was to pour out this, this great amount of water from the, the porch of the temple. It was kind of a reenactment of that wilderness experience when the rock was struck and water came out of the rock. Okay? So it was kind of this picture of the salvation that would come from a striking. Very interesting. And in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up in that great day. And in verse 37, it says this. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How many of you long for that experience? Amen. To come to the rock that was struck. Jesus Christ, the shepherd who was smitten, right? And out of him would come living waters. And in verse 39, notice this. But this he spoke concerning the who? The Spirit. So when this picture of the water of, uh, being filled with living waters, out of him would flow these living waters, it's a picture of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was, what are the next two words? Not yet given. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified? What is John talking about? Jesus was not yet glorified? Okay, so Jesus was a human. Somehow we needed to glorify Jesus. Sometime, somehow we need to shine a really, really big spotlight. Well, what is John talking about? When, or maybe I should say this, how was Jesus to be glorified? Go with me to John chapter 12. All right, are you getting excited about this? this is, okay, this is really cool. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. How is Jesus glorified? We need to understand this because, wait, 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 wait. wait. If, if Jesus being glorified is that gate. That, that, that unlocks the floods of the Holy Spirit upon all humanity, what is that glorification? John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 23. Are you there? John chapter 12, verse 23. Okay. John chapter 12, verse 23. The Bible says, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be what? Okay, okay, tell me about it. Tell me, what is this hour that you're talking about? Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Okay, Jesus is going cryptic on us. Okay, what's he talking about? What is this? He's talking about his death. He's talking about his death. The mo the, what, what appears to be the most unglorious moment of Jesus' life, 
is apparently the hour in which Jesus is glorified. Skip down to verse 30, 30 and 31. It says this, Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. In fact, they actually heard the voice of the Father saying, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So now Jesus is giving explanation. What does this glory mean? Verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who is Jesus talking about? Satan. Apparently, one of the titles in the book of John especially, one of the titles for Satan is ruler of this world? Ruler of this world. Do you know why that is? Because in the Garden of Eden, God set up Adam and Eve to be rulers of this world. And when they went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they essentially gave authority to the devil. Does that make sense? And from that moment, the prince of darkness has been the ruler of this world, though he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. And that's why Jesus, when he's talking about the hour of his glory, being glorified, when he's talking about the hour of the cross, he's saying, ha, 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 now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. This is how Jesus would be glorified. Because when he hung upon the cross, he declared himself conqueror over sin and death. And the ruler of this world would be cast out. That's when Jesus was glorified. But there's more. <laughs> Can I tell you this? There's more. Go with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. So at the cross, Jesus earned the right to sit as king again. Jesus earned the right to sit as conqueror on the throne. But when was he officially? When was he officially inaugurated? When was he officially enthroned in heaven? Right? He's crucified. Then three days later, he rises from the dead. And after his resurrection, there is a ascension. Ascension. Go with me. You're in Revelation chapter 5. Are you there? Last book, New Testament. Revelation chapter 5. If you're there, say amen. All right. Give me a few seconds. Here we go. Revelation chapter 5. All right. Revelation chapter 5, John is seeing a vision, and he's watching things take place in heaven. And in verse 1, it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll, it doesn't, it's not given very much explanation. But from the Old Testament, you have this picture of kings. Whenever kings were given the kingship, Whenever kings were put on a throne, they were supposed to take a copy of the book of the law. And that was supposed to be kind of their scepter. It was supposed to be their, their right-hand man, so to speak. That It gave them authority to rule. And in verse 2, it says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Is that good news or bad news? That's bad news. John is pretty distraught because notice in verse 4, So I wept much. 
He's heaving. He feels utterly hopeless because no one is worthy. No human, even no angel is worthy to take back the throne in heaven. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold the lion, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. This gives John new hope. Oh, there is someone who is worthy. There is someone from the lineage of David. There is someone who can be the king, and he's going to be like a lion. And in verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lion, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain. The one who is worthy to be king is the one who was slain on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the rest of the verse says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And notice this, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. All the earth. This is very interesting. Okay, okay. So let's just kind of, let's put this whole picture together. So, the Holy Spirit's promise eventually would not just be for individual here, individual here, but for all people. The hinge, what that promise is contingent upon, is on Jesus being glorified. Jesus earned the right to be glorified when he conquered sin on the cross. But in Revelation chapter 5, we see when Jesus actually gets to sit on the throne. Okay, do you see that, yes or no? Are we following this? Okay, and what earned him the right to sit on the throne was that he was the lamb that was slain. Okay, so here in Revelation chapter 5, John actually sees Jesus being glorified. And then at the end of verse 7, as a result of this, the seven spirits of God are sent out into all the earth. This is very interesting. The Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation is, is pictured as seven spirits. It's a sevenfold spirit. It's, it, it, many people think that this is a, a, uh, a reference to Isaiah chapter 11 where it's talking about a sevenfold uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it talks about Jesus being anointed with the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of knowledge and of strength, etc., etc. And so the sevenfold Spirit. But what's interesting is that prior to this point in the book of Revelation, there are two references to the seven spirits of God, but those references describe the Spirit as being before the throne of God. Prior to Jesus' enthronement, The seven spirits, or the Holy Spirit, is before the throne of God. Upon Jesus' enthronement, the Spirit is sent out into all the earth. Do we follow this? Jesus was glorified. He earned the right to be king at the cross. He sat upon the throne here in this vision. And as a result of that, the Spirit was sent out. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 kind of picks up this picture. What's very interesting is that in the Roman world, whenever kings returned from their conquests, 
uh, it, it was kind of a, tradition thing, a traditional thing for the king to kind of um, parade his victory, okay? So he would come back home from his conquests wherever, and he would carry in his procession captives, prisoners of war, so to speak. And as he rode back into the capital city, he would throw out gifts of money here and there to the people. Look, hey, we got loot, all right? This is what our victory has accomplished. He would bring captives behind him and give gifts to the people. And in Ephesians chapter 4, are you there? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. If you're there, say amen. All right. Paul picks up this picture. I'll start in verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended where? On high, he led captivity captive and gave what? Gifts to men. In other words, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he led captivity captive, and then he was given out gifts, showering people with the loot. What were those gifts? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, you skip down to verse 11, and it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And this was contingent upon Jesus being able to ascend on high and sit as king. Because now he is ruler of the world. All right. Now we have enough. Now we have enough. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, you remember that there is this powerful experience When Jesus tells the disciples to wait for the promise of the Father, do the disciples just kind of go back home and twiddle their thumbs, yes or no? No. What do they do when they go back to Jerusalem? They pray. They gather together, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray. Next week, we're going to be talking about waiting for the promise. What does that look like? But what we do know is that 10 days later, Acts chapter 2 happens, right? (laughs) Acts chapter 2, and the day of Pentecost was fully come. You remember this. There was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Cloven tongues of fire rested upon those who had gathered to pray. And Peter began preaching a very, very simple but pointed sermon that 3,000 people responded to that day. You remember this story, yes or no? Yeah? And as Peter is preaching this sermon, notice how he interprets this event. Because as the, as the apostles were declaring the glories of God, do you remember what was strange about that? Everybody was hearing it in their own native language. How in the world do these people, these country bumpkins from Galilee, how do they know my language with precision? How can they speak this so clearly? And people were starting to, you know, cast doubt on it. Oh, okay. They've just been having a little too much. You know, they, they thought they were a little tipsy. They thought maybe they were drunk. And Peter stands up and sets the record straight. And in verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Verse 16, are you there? But this is what was spoken by the prophet who? And Peter begins to interpret what they're experiencing according to the promise 
of the Father. Verse 17, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on how many? On all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall see visions. Your young men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Peter understood something. He understood that what they were experiencing was the fulfillment of the promise. In fact, he understood that that fulfillment hinged upon Jesus being glorified. Because go to verse 33. Chapter 2, verse 33. I'll start with verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to where? The right hand of God, this is exactly what John saw in vision in Revelation chapter 5. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter understood. The floodgates of the Holy Spirit would not be poured out until Jesus sat upon the throne. And what gave him the right to sit upon the throne but that he was glorified on the cross? Jesus, or Peter understood this, and this is what he was preaching. And so, when was the promise of the Father available to all flesh? As soon as Jesus sat as king on the throne. Now let's connect the dots. Okay? We've gone through lots and lots of scripture. What does this all mean? Come on. Okay, here's one thing. Calvary comes before Pentecost. Do you follow that? That seems common sense. Yeah, 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 I read the story already, right? Calvary comes before Pentecost. In other words, notice the historical sequence. The victory of the cross and the enthronement of Jesus in heaven. That was signalized on earth with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Do you follow that? Yes or no? That was the historical sequence. Calvary happened. Jesus earned the right. Now he is king, and therefore the earth uh, experiences what his kingship means on earth. That's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If that's what the historical sequence means, this is what the personal significance is. Before you and I could ever experience the Holy Spirit's outpouring in our lives. Calvary comes before Pentecost. In other words, my experience of the outpouring of the Spirit hinges entirely upon my experience of the victory of the cross. It hinges entirely upon the reality of the risen Christ on the throne in my heart. Historically, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, it is because Jesus sits on the throne as king and conqueror over sin. Personally, then, only when Jesus sits as king on the throne of my heart, only when I've asked him to be conqueror over sin, then will I experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in my life. 
Do you follow this today, yes or no? Here's why this is important. <laughs> the promise of the Father, or the baptism of the Spirit, cannot be experienced the other way around. Cannot. Impossible. Pentecost did not come before Calvary. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit does not happen unless Jesus sits on the throne. Here is why this is important. Because so many times we seek for the power of the Spirit, but we're still sitting on the throne. And when that happens, when we pray for the power of the Spirit, when we pray for the blessings of God, we are using God and not God using us. Friends, Calvary comes before Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is not a mysterious force to manipulate. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead to surrender to. This is why this is so clear. We, we must understand this, especially as in the next few weeks, especially as through the end of February, we seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need to know what we're seeking and what we're not seeking. Okay? Okay? So friends, when I ask you, uh, are we seeking together the baptism of the Holy Spirit? We must understand that we are not seeking to use God. We are seeking to be used by God. We are not seeking to, to just take God's power and remain on my throne. No, we're asking that God would take the throne of my heart and that his power would be used through us to bring blessing to the world. That's what we're talking about. So what is the purpose of the Spirit in our lives? The purpose of the Spirit in our lives is to actuate or to activate, however you want to put that. The purpose of the Spirit is to actuate the reality of Jesus as King both in my life and through my life. So when we're praying for the baptism of the Spirit, we're asking first that Jesus would be king, that he would take everything, that he would be conqueror, that he would take captivity captive, and that as he uses us, we would be used in ways to take down the, the strongholds and the footholds of the devil in the world around us. Boom! <laughs> That's what we're praying for. The promise of the Father is contingent upon Jesus being king in our lives. So, when it boils down to it, have you asked that Jesus would take the throne of your heart? Have you come to Calvary and seen that the merits of the cross has earned him the right to actually not just save us in our sin, but to save us from our sin. Have we asked Jesus to take the throne of our heart to crush and conquer sin in our lives? I want us to go to one more promise. Can we do this? This is in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 15. 1 John chapter 4 in verse 15. If Calvary comes before Pentecost, if seeing Jesus as the king 
is the thing upon which the outpouring of the Holy Spirit hinges, then how then, how then can Jesus be glorified, so to speak, in our hearts and minds? How does that happen? How do we ask Jesus to be the king? How do we let him take the throne? 1 John chapter 4, not the Gospel of John, but we're in 1 John. Are you there? Say amen if you are. All right, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 15. The Bible says this, whoever confesses that Jesus is what? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Why don't you sink your teeth into that for just a second? It sounds a little bit simplistic. I've often kind of wondered, like, well, what's the significance of this? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Or, in other words, the Holy Spirit dwells in his life. Now, how many of you long for that experience, right? We long for the Holy Spirit to abide in life. But apparently, according to this promise, that is contingent upon confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. Does that mean that I can just go down the street, anybody say, hey, 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 can you just say these lines, Jesus is the Son of God? <laughs> Does that mean that that person will, will now have the Holy Spirit in their life? There's, there's something more to this. When I read those words, the condition, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, do you know what story comes to mind? At the foot of Calvary, after Jesus hung upon the cross, He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hung his head, breathed his last. There was a Roman centurion who saw everything that took place. And do you know what that Roman centurion said? Surely this was the Son of God. In other words, he saw the demonstration. I'll say this, he saw the ultimate demonstration of the love of God in Christ, on a cross. And out of his mouth came a confession. Surely, this is the Son of God. So when 1 John 4, 15 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, friends, I'm reinterpreting this to mean whoever stands at the foot of the cross and sees the ultimate demonstration of the love of God in Christ, and says, surely this was the Son of God who died for my sins, then the rest of the promise is sure for you and me. God abides in you, and you in God. Wow. Calvary comes before Pentecost. Do you want Pentecost, friends? then go to Calvary. This might sound cliche. This might sound simplistic. Friends, if Pentecost is to be a day-by-day experience, if the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to be something that happens moment by moment, day by day, friends, that means that God needs to take us to Calvary day by day. And so here's the take-home challenge. You want Pentecost? Go to Calvary. You want Pentecost? Look to Jesus, the Son of God, on the cross. Confess that surely Jesus is the Son of God. Walk the shoes of the Roman centurion every day. 
stand in awe of who God is at the foot of the cross and claim the promise of 1 John 4, 15, that when I make this confession, when I see the ultimate revelation of God in Christ, God abides in me and I in God. You want Pentecost? Go to Calvary. You want Pentecost? Let Jesus take the throne of your heart. So here's the take-home challenge. We're going to be focusing on the promise of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be focusing on the baptism of the Holy Spirit all throughout this month and into February. Here's the take-home challenge. And this is your mission, should you choose to accept it. (laughs) Take time. You set the time, you set the hour, you set how many minutes, you set how long it takes. But take time to go to Calvary. We are Christians, right? (laughs) Sure, the story of the cross is something we sing about. Sure, the story of the cross is something we know about. But do we go to Calvary? Do we take up the shoes of the Roman centurion, stand at the foot of the cross, and be wowed by the love of God and confess that surely this is the Son of God. He sits as king, not just in heaven, but on the throne of my heart. And you can hang on to that promise that when you confess that, God abides in you and you in God. We can hang on to that promise not because we feel some sort of ecstatic, woo! No. We can hang on to that promise not because of our feeling, but because of our faith in God's word. Maybe you don't demonstrate some you know, so, some radical, some, some, uh, I, I, some radical, we'll just leave it there, <laughs> some radical manifestation, but look, we are Christians. We walk by faith, not feeling. Amen. So if you want Pentecost, go to Calvary. How many of you want Pentecost this morning? Amen. Here's the next question. How many of you are willing to take the challenge? You set the time, you set the time of day, you set the length of time, but go to Calvary. How many of you are willing to go to Calvary? Amen. Amen. I want to bow our heads. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that Pentecost was not just reserved for the early church. The experience of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for all, no matter the gender, no matter the age, no matter the class. And Father, we've seen today that this promise is something you long to fulfill, and now we understand that if we want Pentecost, we must go to Calvary. Oh Lord, I pray that you would be the one to specify in our own calendars, that you would be the one to specify uh, how it is that we go to the cross. Maybe it's by going to a specific chapter. Maybe it's by singing a specific song. Whatever it is, God, I pray that you would cause us to take up the shoes of the Roman centurion day by day. That we would stand at the foot of the cross. That 1 John 4.15 would be our experience that as we confess that you are the Son of God, we would know for certain that God's Spirit abides in us. God, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen.